Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the Sectarianism, Proxies, and Desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined with Mona Fawaz. Mona is Professor of Urban Studies and Planning at the American University of Beirut. She's written extensively on urban planning and spaces, the right to the city across Lebanon, focusing, of course, on, on Beirut and the various dimensions at play there. So I'm really excited to, to talk to her about her work today. Mona, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm really looking forward to this and to uh, to hearing your your story, essentially. So, as as usual, I, I'd like to start just by asking, what prompted your your interest in in academia and indeed uh, in urban studies more broadly, please? Sure. So I studied architecture as an undergraduate. It was not a very uh, well thought out choice. It was because I was a really good student and it was really a hard department to get in. Uh, so that's how I landed in architecture. Huh, okay. uh, but And as I studied architecture, I wasn't really uh, very happy with design. And then we started taking courses in urban issues. And I found myself to be uh, really fascinated by uh, those issues. And I started asking around me and figured out that some of my uh, family members actually were in, had been st- studying uh, urban issues and were involved. And that got me super interested in the field. So uh, by the time I had finished architecture, I knew it was city planning that I wanted to do. I didn't think I wanted to do a PhD. It was right at the end of the civil war in Lebanon. And uh, I recall that I, I thought uh, it would be really great to learn more about this and come back and make a difference uh, for how the post-war reconstruction was happening. So when I went to MRT, it was very much with in mind uh, two years, a quick master's, I come back. Uh, but then I loved research and uh, I mean, I just got hooked and I really started enjoying reading and thinking about issues. And I, uh, as I was doing the field work for my master's thesis, I wanted to know more about the topics I was investigating. So it really came naturally. By the time I finished my master's, I had already applied for a PhD and I knew this is really what I wanted to do. That's that's really interesting. Was the PhD at the in, in Beirut as well, or was that elsewhere? I did my master's and my PhD in the States, in the States but okay. I investigated issues in Lebanon. Sure. Okay, so let's go back to to your, pre, um, your pre-undergraduate days, if I may. And you, you say that, that you were interested in, in architecture because it was a difficult course to, to get on, but was there anything else there? Was there a sort of an interest in, in the way that people interact with the city? Was there an interest in designing things? Or was it purely that instrumental, this is a, a tough course and I want to demonstrate that I am that student? Hey, look, look, it's hard to tell when you're 17 and uh, you're trying to choose a major for your life. Yeah. Uh, I, I recall at some point I wanted to do civil engineering because my father is a civil engineer. And so I thought that made sense and I could work with him when I graduate. But then he said that civil engineering was for boys and architecture was more for girls. Right. And so it was these kinds of mistakes that landed me at the end in architecture. I can't say that I really loved buildings. I did love cities. I, I have to say that soon after I entered architecture, it was the end of the civil war in Lebanon. And it was the time when they were rebuilding the historic core and the idea of creating this private real estate company, Solidaire, 
was coming to the fore. And so we started protesting the destruction of heritage. And that got me really interested in architecture, in the city, in building, in why it was important to actually keep the memory of the city. Uh, and uh, these issues started my really my interest in architecture. So maybe if I wasn't a student in architecture, I would have been less uh, uh, had, I would have had less opportunity to be interested in the urban. So certainly it helped me and geared me towards that. But I can't claim that when I joined the department, I, I knew I wanted to be an urbanist. Sure. OK, so a, a happy series of, of accidents has led you to where you are today. Um, th- that period of, of post-Civil War um, reconstruction and the emergence of, of uh, organisations like Solidaire, can you tell us a bit about that? That period. I mean, you mentioned that you were engaged in in protest. What was that like, and I mean, what was driving it? There, oh, in the early nineteen nineties. Uh, there wasn't uh, the kind of very visible social movements you're seeing now, but there were very interesting uh, conversations happening in the city. I remember uh, two kinds of mobilizations that I was involved in that I think are uh, both uh, very important to put uh, as a background for what's happening now in Beirut. The first was about uh, uh, how do you uh, render those who made the civil war accountable. Mm. So if you remember, the end of the Lebanese civil war had been just by taking the warlords uh, to a conference, paying them off, and basically bringing them back in business suits as the businessmen who will rebuild the country. And... uh, There was, at the same time in 1990, what was happening in South Africa and the idea of a truce and reconciliation committee and rendering and talking about the past and trying to recover it. Uh, And at that time, South Africa was us was a very big model for us. We really talked a lot about it. And uh, there was a lot of conversation about holding a court and creating justice uh, and really forcing those who had made the civil war to recognize how they had built sectarianism. Uh, So there was a lot of talk at that moment about secularism. I was part of a group that used to go around to high schools and talk to students about why we needed to build a secular state. So that was one of the things that I I, I started getting engaged with. And then the other thing was uh, uh, around architecture. Uh, In the early 1990s, uh, the reconstruction of downtown was really uh, a a very uh, bizarre setup in which... uh, the historic core of the city was basically uh, expropriated, but then expropriated for a private entity, this real estate company. A special law was created to allow for this to happen. And the real estate company was obviously very interested in speculative practices. So it was destroying a lot of heritage. Uh, it was claiming buildings were not structurally sound when they were. And so that had created also a real vibrant conversation about how do you rebuild the city. And that conversation was very visible. And there were conferences, there were protests, there were events uh, that surrounded it, uh, that contested it. And so as students of architecture, this was very uh, normal to be engaged with. So I remember going to protests because it was unfair to take people's property, but also and especially uh, protests at that time 
to protect the heritage of the city, to say yeah. that it wasn't tried to destroy so many buildings uh, and that we needed this memory uh, as a way to remember what we did to ourselves and to uh, recognize that before the war, there used to be a collective identity around that historic core that was the place of remembrance for people to live together, etc., which we really lost with the historic core. Yeah. So... I imagine that most of our listeners are familiar with with Beirut, but for those who aren't, just tell us where exactly you mean by by downtown and what what in particular are you getting at in terms of heritage and and history there. So people think of Beirut uh, often as a very old city. Uh, Beirut is a Phoenician port. It used to be a very old city. But that historic core that has still some of the Phoenician walls was destroyed by a tsunami. And Beirut ended up being a very small village for many, many years. So throughout the Ottoman Empire and into the 1800s, Beirut was never larger than uh, 5,000 people, 4,000 people. It was always, it was never the center of a government uh, in the Ottoman Empire until the mid-1800s. So it's only with the sectarian regional wars that people started coming to Beirut and then with the trade with Europe that uh, the city began to grow. Uh, So after 1860, Beirut begins to... play the role of an important center, and it begins to be built up. And so the city has a bit of a fabric of those Ottoman days. And then uh, a beautiful French mandate fabric uh, that you see uh, that uh, in it around that fabric and that historical core, which then grew during the modern era. So what people call Beirut's historic core is... Uh, is uh, is a is about is roughly an area I, I actually don't won't remember the size of the area but it's not a very big area it's the historic uh, building uh, space that uh, that was what formed Beirut until the 1900s okay that's that's a useful bit of context there Mona thank you it strikes me that that Beirut as a as a city has been a real focus of of urban planners, urban studies, political geographers, uh, and and various others interested in in urban dimensions and and the right to the city, as as David Harvey put it. But why do you think that that is? Is it because of this rich history and 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 what happened after the the sort of the French mandate and and. Uh, the the national pact and Taif and uh, everything else that that followed. Look, I, I I do think that the fact that the post-war reconstruction created such a debate about what kind of a city do you want, uh, that it was such a laboratory of uh, experimental urban intervention. Uh, after all, the model of creating a real estate company like Solidaire in Beirut uh, was replicated later in Amman, uh, with, at, at, in Morocco. There's also attempts in Cairo. So there's this imagination of how do you intervene on the city um, that created uh, quite a vibrant discussion about Beirut itself. And I think there's also a memory of Beirut of the 1960s, which was actually a tourist hub and quite an important financial center at the time. and that memory uh, created interest in its reconstruction in the 1990s. I wouldn't say that there is a very big body of work on Beirut before the post-war era, but there's definitely uh, an imagination and uh, tourist pamphlets and debates about the city, uh, films that were uh, 
played in the city in the 1960s and 70s that create the grounds for urban studies to be uh, to flourish in the 1990s with the with the pro with the with the solidar project primarily first but later also uh, i think that project attracted funding brought in researchers there was quite a, uh, an important role played by the french research center at the time that established an urban unit uh, many of us were tr uh, many of us were trained there or if we weren't trained there we went to events around the urban uh, in the french cultural center and that eventually created more uh, urban studies programs in the city. There are uh, several urban studies programs. There's schools, there are theses that are being written uh, about the city all the time. And I think that has really made uh, uh, the urban be an important uh, piece of uh, the contemporary moment of the city. And the fact that so many uh, of our students have graduated from a department where uh, we are committed to ideas of the right to the city, of uh, the importance of the city as a space of collective living uh, and memory, uh, means that there's a lot of activism around that issue. And I think that is keeping uh, a lot of interest uh, around it. And uh, yeah. It strikes me that I mean there's a there's a real almost symbiotic relationship between urban studies and and activism. Why do you think that is? Oh, absolutely in Beirut. I mean for us uh I mean, as an activist, I will tell you the urban is critical because it's the place where I can encourage people to think that they are a collective and that they can engage in uh, the public between brackets or if you want the political in a way that is uh, empowering. Uh, if you live in Beirut, a lot of what happens in your everyday life is decided in big capital cities outside of your country. You think of politics as something super dirty. You don't want to get involved. And consequently, what has happened is that people have delegated everything about the management of our public lives to a small group of very corrupt individuals who have who uh, basically built on it and alienate and basically let down of the city. So what we we use the urban as uh, a place in which we can re-engage people into a political where they can make a difference. So when you tell people, okay, you don't have to think about Saudi Arabia and Iran and the United States and Israel. Uh, what you have to think about is your everyday life. How are you going to share those spaces with your neighbors? Are you planning to spend every day an hour and a half in your car uh, to get to work? Uh, don't you deserve a public space around your garden? Wouldn't you like to have some clean air so your kids don't have asthma? People immediately feel that they are invested. And for me, this is a hook for the political, which is uh, more reassuring and empowering because that you can change and you have, can have a concrete theory of change that engages people into something that matters in their everyday life. And yeah. so I think that the urban that we've been really successful in Beirut in building the urban as a space of uh, of collective work. Fantastic. I mean, there's also the, I guess, from what you're saying, there's this this thesis of the right to the city, which is so evident in in everything that you're talking about in Beirut. 
Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I've been thinking and writing about this for a very long time. Look, I mean, if you grew up in the Civil War, it's interesting. You, you, I, I don't always link this to, uh, together. But when you grow up in the Civil War, you're afraid of the public. You think this street is a scary place. And you don't, you're not really very familiar with your city. And everything that doesn't work, you think, is the outcome of the war. You don't think of social justice. You don't think of inclusion naturally because you're being sheltered so that you can actually survive. And so what, what, what happened when I went to, to, to the States to study, I remember very clearly that we were being shown examples of informal settlements, you know, those little corrugated metal houses and stuff like this. Yeah. And I was looking and I was shocked that they had them. Because, of course, we have them in Lebanon, but we think, oh, this is because of the war. And so I started looking for historical pictures of Beirut, and I found out very quickly that, yes, we had informal settlements like every city around the world way before the Civil War. And they were the result of class distinctions and people not being granted the right to the city and uh, etc. And so when I came back to Beirut and I started researching these topics, I would talk to public officials and I would say, uh, well, you know, we need to include this as part of what's a housing policy. And I would hear stuff like, oh, no, this is the result of the war. That's not what the urban unit does. This is what the Ministry of Refugees does. And when I would pull out these aerial photographs and say, look, these people have been here since the 1960s, they would say, oh, these are crooks. We should figure out which one they are and send them, uh, send the police to them. So it's a very, to be able to recreate a conversation where you place the narrative of Beirut outside of the exceptionalism of the war in debates like the right to the city, I think was, is challenging, but is very important. And this has been something that uh, a lot of us are very committed to. And I think moving forward with what happened uh, in the recent months, uh, this will gain more and more attention and importance. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure about that. I'd like to get onto the protests in a, in a few minutes, if I may. But before that, can I ask, Mona, one of the things that, that I've been fascinated about your work is that aside from looking at Beirut generally and Solidaire, you've also applied some of these spatial questions to... Uh, to to Hezbollah, a group that has traditionally been viewed in in academic work from sort of social movements, from political violence, uh, terrorism, sectarianism literature, but you've approached them by looking at some of these questions about space and urban planning, which I thought mm-hmm. was fascinating. But can you tell us a little bit about about what you're what you're trying to do with with that when you're looking at at Hezbollah and some of their their sort of urban spaces? Um, well, I mean, if you're trying to understand the urban context in which you live and the players who are intervening on its spaces. Uh, you have to uh, be able to understand that there are players who don't look the way you expect them to look in other contexts and to uh, unbundle the kind of interventions that they play. When I first uh, started noticing the amount of uh, urban policy interventions that uh, Hezbollah was uh, was was intervening with in the southern suburbs of Beirut and in other cities, uh, I was struck by how... Uh, 
sort of up to date it was with what we were reading in the, my literature at uh, MIT about other contexts in terms of interventions. This is the first microcredit that was happening in the city. Uh, they were a network of organizations with very strong culture. So this was really speaking to the theories I was reading more than anything else. So I started being super fascinated. And then the more I dived into this, the more I realized that behind this social justice discourse, there were a lot of comments that actually located Hezbollah like many other uh, players that you didn't expect that uh, that are part of sort of this privatization of planning and pushing planning into a direction that takes it away from the common good. See, I mean, what's beautiful about planning is that Yes, it's been critiqued. Yes, it has a lot of limitations as a discipline. But urban planning uh, at its core is a profession that imagines that it takes care of the collective, of the shared. And that is something which in a country like Lebanon um, requires you to uh, not take it for granted. What is shared in a country where every sectarian community has uh, some uh, privatized, private political authority that speaks of this collective. And so Hezbollah is a very powerful one. And you have to break it down. You have to understand its intervention outside of the binary of, is it terrorist? Is it not terrorist? Is yeah. it public? Is it private? So that was, for me, something that I think is critical. And the post-war reconstruction of the southern suburbs of Beirut allowed me really to show the extent to which it looks like any other private actor, actually. Mm. That's a really interesting point. It also strikes me from there that maybe the, the thing under underlying all of this, and indeed a lot of the the literature on, on urban planning and urban studies more broadly, is, is neoliberalism. Yeah, for definitely. Definitely. So there's there there is in the recent decade, there's uh, definitely been a complete delegation of planning more than the recent de decade. And um this was facilitated by some of the critiques of planning that uh, basically uh, critiqued planning for not living up to the promises it did, which is true. But at the same time, when you critique the profession, you want to be careful that this aspiration we had back in the 1970s for social justice, for equity that motivated the works of David Harvey, Henri Lefebvre, the early work of Manuel Castells and others, all of these are being evacuated with the critique of planning. And so I think it's really important as we try to uh, recover strategies for how uh, we can uh, have more uh, inclusive, equitable cities that we uh, recover some of those in, and question how, how some of the critiques of planning have actually fed neoliberalism. Mm. Moving slightly away from that, I mean, it's, it's really fascinating. But I, I wonder, to what extent do you think that that this this planning and the neoliberal dimensions have have served to reinforce the the sect based organization of of Beirut and its politics? Look, on my work in Hezbollah, I was very clear. I I mean, I argued that uh, when you argue that the state should roll back, you should be careful about who is going to roll in. And yeah. definitely in Beirut, the actors that have become extremely powerful are sectarian actors. Uh, I documented Hezbollah in the post-war reconstruction of 2006 as one of those examples. And I, I showed how uh, it, it was possible for the party uh, to take charge and to rebuild the 220 buildings it rebuilt for people, uh, specifically because the public actor wanted to limit its role to here, take a compensation and leave me alone. 
uh, which uh, was, uh, to me, a very uh, um, sort of neoliberal public strategy of reducing the role of the state from that of being uh, the pro uh, uh, some kind of a provider or caretaker to really being just uh, take some money and leave me alone, which is a very sort of finance, regulate approach. So definitely we see this with Hezbollah. Now, if you want to enter in the housing sector in Lebanon, you will see that uh, given the financialization of land and the fact that there's been so many public policies that have encouraged, again, in line with neoliberalism, in private investments in, in land as property uh, and as an asset or a safety deposit box as opposed to a, to a lived or um, a social, uh, asset that has a social value, what has happened is more and more people are unable to secure shelter. And the only uh, groups that can help you get shelter are basically religious slash sectarian uh, yeah. organizations, whether it's the Maronite Church or Hezbollah or the Sunni Waqf or others. Consistently, they are playing a massive role. And of course, these organizations will only provide you shelter if you're marrying someone from the right sect. So of course, yeah. that means we're reproducing sectarianism uh, through these kinds of interventions. So you're definitely right in thinking that. It... <laughs> It strikes me, Mona, that, that we've almost come full circle here then in the sense that when you put this, this complex jigsaw together, you get a real, um, really interesting, frustrating, depressing, yet potentially empowering way of organizing life in the city that if done correctly, fulfills some of the criteria of what David Harvey was talking about in the right of the city. But... Conversely, when it's not, and when you see this reproduction of sect-based organisation, um, and the underpinned by the the neoliberal facets and forces that that regulate life, you get widespread anger and frustration, which results in the protests that we've seen since October seventeen. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. What, what I think was super interesting in the protests of uh, October, especially the first period uh, of those protests, is the moment of surprise past the anger when people realized that everyone else was protesting. Yeah. So I think every sect thought they were protesting alone. Every social group thought they were protesting alone. And when they found they weren't alone, but actually everyone, literally everyone was on the street, it created that moment of euphoria. I don't know if you followed the news. People were like making fun of how much there was partying happening in mm. all the cities of Lebanon. Yeah. But I think that partying was really an incredible celebration of uh, seeing that we could be together as Lebanese, perhaps in the first moment of our history. I mean, the only other time I recall this level of euphoria in Lebanon was the withdrawal of the Israeli army from South Lebanon in 2000. So I think there's something to be said about uh, that transformative moment. It doesn't mean that the revolution canceled everything and now they all love each other. I think people are retracting in many ways back to their positions. But it means that there's a possibility and that that, move, that pendulum movement may happen more often and usher something more positive. Yeah, I'd certainly like to think that there is more positivity in, in the future. But just one, one final point on the, the protests. I mean, to what extent do you think space is, is key here? Because there's been a lot of, of work done and a lot of coverage of, of the transformation of the transformative aspects of the protests 
that have sought to try and reimagine um, particular spaces as sites of possibility now? Yes. Yes, definitely. The protests have definitely ushered a different political imaginary. They've definitely allowed people to imagine things they wouldn't have imagined in different circumstances. I, I certainly uh, agree with this. And I, and I think that you can see it in the practice of space, in the way in which they suddenly feel entitled to occupy spaces in Beirut downtown permanently and in other cities, in uh, imagining a different future. In, uh, and, and, and that is carried by different attitudes. Uh, suddenly there's an interest in the public. There's yeah. an interest in understanding a public matter. What does it, why do macroeconomics matter? How can I render, uh, how can I, what kind of a law should I support for rendering uh, corrupt politicians accountable? Mm -hmm. Why is the independence of the judiciary important? These are questions that people never cared about. And suddenly you see people sitting in hundreds uh, on a Sunday afternoon instead of going for a brunch or spending time with the family to educate themselves and think about what role they can play. So that's definitely a, a, a very different political imaginary. And I, I, I really agree that, that these are the kinds of things that you can build on for, for more hope. Fantastic. Well, Mona, we've taken up so much of your time already, but thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. It's been really provocative. I've learned a lot and I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Simon. Thank you so much. Thank you again. And thank you, everyone, for listening. As always, until next time.